We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. You can turn there with me, and we'll go from there. A lot of us, uh, when I, I, I had a church planner buddy here in town last week, and he said, you know, Matt, what is Salem like? And, um, and Salem is, is just kind of Salem. It's, it's, it's an interesting place to be because it's a pretty steady place to be with, you know, uh, state workers, and, uh, and then you've got uh, people that work for the hospital. I think those are the number one and two employers in, in town here. Amazon will be coming up here shortly as uh, one of the top employers in, in, the, in the city and so forth. But there's, there's not a whole lot that's, you know, that's crazy or, um, or, you know, big about Salem. It's just kind of a, a little bit of a ho-hum city. I love our city, don't get me wrong, but it is kind of a ho-hum city. And so I think that there's a level of complacency that we sometimes can feel. And this isn't just unique to Salem. This is a part of American Christianity. And part of it is because we do have so much. We do have uh, the finances. We, we were not really pushed into a point of really needing God all of the time because the economy is booming right now. Many of us are, uh, all, most of us have jobs where, where uh, quite a few of us are, are doing well. I mean, if there's a lot of middle class people in this, in this room. And so we can't really complain. And so there's this complacency. There's this indifference that sets into our lives and so I don't have like a kickoff, you know, uh, year 2020 uh, vision for you. We're not even going to use those words because that's ridiculous. But, um, you know, I don't have that. But what I do have is that I, I want to beg you to not be indifferent towards Jesus this year. And that this year that you would not be indifferent towards what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And if you make any resolution at all, in spite of what Matt said early on uh, here in the service, but if you make any resolution at all, that you would make a resolution to say, I am not going to live and I am not going to exist in indifference towards Jesus and what he's done for me. And I'm going to engage with this God through the power of Jesus Christ because of how he's operated in my life and what I see in him. Because I got to tell you this, that you could come to a lot of church services and you could listen to a lot of worship music and you could do a lot of those things and you could still just be as dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking. You could be somebody that is just really kind of going nowhere spiritually and you're in this place where it's just, it's just not really working. It's, it turns into an affinity group and that's all that it is for you. But I want to encourage you in this, and that is that there is so much more for you and I in a relationship with God than maybe we have ever experienced before. I mean, foundationally speaking, as, as a church, this is something that we have talked about from the beginning and saying, like, there's more for us out here. We don't have to take the spirituality of our parents we don't have to take the spirituality of the former generation. We can be people that are passionately involved with who God is and how he has blessed us thoroughly. But the question is, how do you stinking get there? How do you get to that place where you have a passion for God? Well, we have to look at who God is. We have to see who he is. In the book of Luke, as I've been telling you, Luke is writing a, uh, a, a book. It's the, one of the longest books in the New Testament. I think it is the longest book, if I remember right, in the New Testament. And he's writing this book as if it's an article. It's an investigative article. He's an investigative reporter. And he's investigating the man who is God. That is Jesus. And he's telling his friend Theophilus, 
about who this guy Jesus is. And so he wants him to know all of these details. And so he's writing to Theophilus and he's saying, I, I want you to know these things. And so in chapter two, a little bit earlier, in fact, two weeks ago, I was preaching on this just the week before Christmas, told the Christmas story and really, and, and talked about uh, uh, the announcement of Jesus through the angels. And then in the next two stories, we also see some more words that are spoken about Jesus. And so there's one commentator that, that said this, like he says, I believe that Luke is trying to tell Theophilus, like this is what was said about Jesus. This is what you should know about him. And so I wanna read some of this to you. I, as I said, I covered the first part of chapter two uh, last week or two weeks ago. And so we'll pick it up in verse 22. And it says this, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So we just got done with the Christmas story. We're picking it up right here. And it says that when it came time for their purification. And what that means is that there's Old Testament law that says that after childbirth, you're unclean for seven days. And then there's another 33 days that you've got to wait. So on the 40th day after the birth of this child, you go to the temple and you uh, have it, uh, make a sacrifice and, and so forth. And so you enact purification through this through an Old Testament law. So that's what they're doing here. So they go up to Jerusalem to present him, that's Jesus, to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Stop and think about this for just a second. Luke is talking to a guy who doesn't seem to be a, a, a Hebrew or a, an Israelite, or a Jew, I should say, probably. He's, he's not Jewish, and so he doesn't really know these things. And so Luke is explaining to him some things about, you know, their culture. And so he's explaining to, them, uh, to him these things. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now that right there, that type of sacrifice, there were other sacrifices that you could make but these were for the poorer people. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, afford these larger animals. And so here is Joseph and Mary, and they are kind of poor. They're poor people, and so they have a poor sacrifice, which is okay. This is what the law says. They can do that, and that's what they did. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is essentially you're waiting for Jesus or God, I should say at that point, to come and redeem his people. They're waiting for, for him to come and redeem his people to uh, take them out from underneath these evil Roman rulers. And so that's what he's waiting for. He's a very devout and righteous man, it says. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now think about this. This is yet another song or a saying or something. Luke kind of goes back and forth between like investigative reporting and then he adds a song to it. Like this is the song that he sang and then Mary sang a song and Elizabeth sang a song and Zachariah uh, sang a song as well. And so here is Simeon's song. And he's praising God because he's allowing his servant to depart in peace because he has seen the Lord's Christ. That is Jesus. Verse 30 says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a, word, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that, the, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's a mouthful. I'm going to explain that in a few minutes. Just hold on that for just a second. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, we're going to keep going here. Verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy uh, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to J Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Why have you treated us like this? And he says, behold, your father and I, oh, no, he didn't say that. My bad. Here we go. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, this is where he says this, uh, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, throughout the book of, uh, of uh, throughout chapter 2 in the book of Luke here, there's three stories. And the first story I told you about was the Christmas story where we have the angels that come down and say, for unto us a child is born. Um, it's, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people of Israel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
So that's one. And then we have the second one, which is Simeon. And, and Simeon starts to talk about Jesus. And he starts to, uh, he, he, he has this song, and then he has this cryptic saying that he says as well. And then the third one is this, is that Jesus says something about himself. So there's three things, three sayings that are said about Jesus to Theophilus. And here's Theophilus, and so Luke is trying to tell Theophilus, I want you to know what was said about Jesus, and so I have talked to these witnesses, and so I, wa I want you to see what has happened here. And so he's explaining something to him. So three things. There's the angels, there's Simeon and, and Anna, and then the third thing is Jesus himself. So what do these three things actually tell us? Well, they really tell us the who, the what, and the why. Just very, very simply. Tells us the who... The who is that Jesus is the Savior, which means that he is able to save us from an evil enemy. He's able to save us from uh, Satan, sin, and death. We talked about that two weeks ago. He is Christ, which means that he is the anointed one of God, meaning that he's not just a Savior. He's not just like a, a hero, but he is a hero who is from God. He is the anointed one. He is the one who, that everyone has been waiting for, uh, for the consolation of Israel. This is the one. He's anointed by God, and he is here. And then the third thing is that he is the Lord. And the Lord speaks to this idea, this reality, that he is sovereign, that he is sovereign. So when we're talking about what it means to be a Christian, the first thing that we have to understand is that he, he is our Savior, and that he's not just a Savior, but he is a Savior from God, and the third thing is that he is sovereign over all things. He is Lord over all of us, whether we like it or not, he is Lord. And so when we talk about, like, do I have a relationship with God? Do I have a relationship with this who, with this person? The person of Christ. Do I have a relationship with him? Oftentimes we say, you know what? I like Jesus. I like Jesus. He seems like a pretty good guy. I don't like what all those churches say about him and what, what, what he teaches necessarily, but uh, I like this guy, Jesus. Many people say that. Many, many people say that. And I would say this. That there's a lot of people in the church today that are familiar with Jesus but they've never taken further steps beyond that. They've, they've received him in some sense. They've accepted the story of him as Savior. They've accepted the reality that he is from God. And they've accepted the fact that he is Lord. But it's never taken any further meaning in their life. And what happens is this, is that I think that this is what leads us to a level of indifference a level of complacency, a level of, of something in the American church today that leads us to be people who are not active in our faith, who are not loving towards those people that vehemently disagree with us, who are not people who are operating in the power or, or by the power of the Holy Spirit. We just tend to be people who are Christian and name only because we've acknowledged who Jesus is but it's never gone further beyond that. Now, look at the second thing here. Simeon and Anna. These two people are both prophets. They both seem to be uh, old. We're not entirely sure about Simeon, but Anna is, uh, is definitely old. They're, they're, they're along in years. And so they have been waiting for the consolation or the redemption of Jerusalem. 
That's the same thing. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for him to come. They're devout people. And they both happened to go to the temple on that day. God has brought them together. He has made them convene there in the temple. And Simeon begins to speak. And it says in verse 34, no, I'm sorry, um, verse 28, I should say. No, I can't see. 29. It's getting bad, people. All right. Apparently this happens when you hit 40, and I'm 43 now. So, uh, Verse 29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so here's Simeon and, and Anna. We don't have exact words of what she said, but she seems to have said something similar to this. She's uh, overjoyed by having seen the Savior, and this is what Simeon is doing. He is, he is essentially announcing something that hasn't been announced previously. What hasn't been announced previously in the book of Luke is this, is that it's not just for the Jews. Salvation isn't just for the Jews but it's also for the Gentiles. A light uh, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's like there's revelation and glory for the Gentiles and Israel. They're kind of all in there together. And the, the, what he's saying here is he's saying that you people who feel like you're on the outside, like you get to be on the inside. You no longer have to be outsiders, and you get to see this light, and you can see this light through Jesus Christ. Luke is exclaiming to Theophilus. He's saying this. He's saying the people who don't think they belong, the people who look at their lives and they say, I don't even know why I do what I do. I don't even know why I live the way that I live. All I know is that it's tearing me apart. The people who say, like, uh, you know, I've been religious all my life and not a whole lot's happening, it's for those people too. It's, it's light to the Gentiles. It's to illuminate who God is. And Simeon is exclaiming this, and he's saying this about Jesus, and he wants Theophilus to know this. And guess what? God wants you to know this as well. That you could have come in here pretty banged up. And you could have come in here, and many of us have on many different occasions. You could have come in here and feeling like, I got nothing to offer this guy. And you know what? You're right. You don't have anything to offer God. But you know what he's got to offer you? Jesus. Himself. He gives you himself. It's a beautiful thing. So we talked about the who. This is the what that I'm currently talking about. I didn't clarify that. And then Simeon says in verse 34, gives this very cryptic uh, saying, it says, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Now that's the ESV version of the Bible. It's a translation. It's so literal that it almost makes it really clumsy because that's the way that it appears in the original text. 
The NIV takes a little bit of liberties, but it also clears it up a little bit. NIV version, I should say. Let me read it from there. It says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, who are we talking about here? Uh, here's Simeon, and he's speaking uh, to Mary. He's talking to her, and he is saying to her, like, this child, I just want to confirm for you, uh, Mary, what this child has been appointed to do. And what this child has been appointed to do, like, he will have a polarizing effect on people. There's going to be this rising of some and this falling of others. And what's he saying to, to Mary? Some are going to rise because of Jesus, and some are going to fall. What's he communicating to you and I? Everything rises and falls on Jesus himself, his person. Everything. You came in here today to get a little cleaned up? I have nothing to offer you in that respect. What I have for you is I have Jesus, period. I have Jesus Christ himself. This child will bring that. And he will be a sign that is, that is opposed. Again, the NIV says, a sign that will be spoken against. What, what's this mean? It means that he is going to be such a, an incredible figure. He's going to be such a polarizing figure that, there, that people are going to be opposed to him and some, some people are going to be for him. People are going to speak against him. And what's going to happen in verse 35 is that, is that so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed like what's going to happen is this, is that people are going to be opposed to him. They're going to see who he is, and they're going to be against him. And how much of that do we have in our culture today? How awkward is it to talk about this religious leader, Jesus? How awkward is it to talk about him and to discuss him with your friends and with your family? How awkward is that? If you're like in, in, you know, some type of a work meeting and you, you bring up, you know, I'm, I'm really into Jesus Christ. I'm really in to loving him and serving him. How crazy is that? Why is Jesus Christ the only cuss word with a religious leader in it? Why? It's because there is power in the name of Jesus and that he is effective, that he really is God in the flesh. That he really is the only one that you can give your life to and see it change who you are. He is the only one. And if you hear nothing from me today, understand this, that Jesus is the only one that can do this for you. He will be somebody who is polarizing. He's a polarizing figure. Why? Why is he a polarizing figure? Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. You don't need to turn there. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what is, this, what is that even saying? Well, look at what it says to, to, to Mary here. It says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Why does he say to Mary, hey, there's a sword that's going to pierce your soul? Well, she's, she's a mom. She's a mom to 
the son of God. And one day, she is going to see him be brutalized. She is going to see him be absolutely brutalized uh, over a period of time, and it is going to be excruciating. That word literally means of the cross. It is going to be excruciating for her. Now, I've been through some relatively excruciating things with my kids. My oldest son was hit in the knee this, uh, this uh, last baseball season with a ball. Um, his friend got mad and threw the, the baseball, tags him in the knee while he's on the pitcher's mound. He falls down. It was excruciating for him. It was excruciating for me to listen to how bad it hurt him. Um, but there's lots of experiences like that with my kids. And I've never experienced something like that. It's saying this. It's saying, Mary, a sword is going to pierce your soul. And what is the sword? What is the sword? The sword is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is going to pierce her soul in a way that it doesn't pierce anybody. But what that's saying to us is this. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The story of Jesus going to the cross, the story that's going to pierce Mary's soul, is, is, it sounds like folly. It sounds like foolishness. Why is Jesus a polarizing figure? And the reason is this, is because the cross seems like absolute foolishness. The cross seems like the most ridiculous thing that could possibly be. But what this is saying here is that everything rises and falls on who Jesus is and what he's done. It, it rises and falls on the what of what he's done. He's a polarizing figure because of the cross. But oftentimes, we are indifferent. Oftentimes, we are indifferent to it. Do you know why we suffer from American Christianity? The plague that that is? It's because of this indifference that we have. It's an indifference towards Jesus' work on the cross. I like the guy Jesus, but I've, I'm not concentrating on what he's done. I've, perhaps I've never concentrated on it. I've never really contemplated what that was like. Simeon says, it's like a sword going through Mary. It's like a sword going through her. And as a result, depending on how you respond to that, what's gonna happen is this, is that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What you think about Jesus Christ, the person, and what he's done reveals where you stand. Leon Morris. A commentator, great commentator, says this. When people see Christ suffer, their reaction shows on which side they stand. When you see Christ suffer, how do you react to that? How do you react? Is it indifference? Because i got to say, I'm pretty indifferent sometimes. And I, and I, <laughs> I do this every week. I, I, I put a sermon together every week, and, and there's a lot of times that I'm, I'm indifferent. I wonder where you're at. Are you indifferent? Where does indifference come from? Well, indifference comes from bad theology. 
And some of you say, you know, I'm not a theology student. I don't really know what that's about. I've never studied it. But the truth is that if you believe things about God, if you believe things about what it takes to get to God, you are a theologian. However, you may be a really bad theologian. You may not be very good at it. In fact, most of us are not good theologians. That's why we have to read the Bible to understand who God is. But we're bad theologians when what we believe is this, is that I, I've, I've believed in Jesus Christ and it's essentially become fire insurance for me. It's essentially become something that's just like, you know, if I die ever, whatever, I, I, uh, I guess I have this insurance that I have started a relationship with Jesus Christ on, on some level, which means that I walked the aisle at a conference or I raised my hand or I prayed a prayer. But what it's only produced in me is being a Christian in name only. It's really only produced that. And so there's this bad theology about this idea of, like, uh, I may have received Christ, um, I, I may not, I'm not really sure, uh, but I'm just going to try a little bit harder to be pretty good. I'm going to try to do more good than bad. I'm going to try to please God, and when I don't please God, I'm going to sit in shame and maybe not tell anybody in my church or not talk to God about it. I might even stop going to church because when I'm at church, it just reminds me of how, of, of how bad I am. This bad theology works its way through our lives. There's so many people who suffer from this. This bad theology that does not help us understand that the only thing that I need is I need Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for me and I need to receive that by faith. And when I receive that by faith and walk in that forgiveness on a regular basis, my life is changed because I'm constantly, constantly being reminded of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How you respond to Christ on the cross reveals who you are, reveals where you stand. We have bad theology. I've been watching this documentary, a documentary series on uh, Scientology, and I've been absolutely shocked by it because I can see in this documentary all of these bad theologies that many of us believe as Americans They've just put it in a book and said that aliens are coming and, and all kinds of weird things like that. But they've put it in a book and these people vehemently believe this stuff. They've codified this idea of I've got to be good in order to be accepted. And if I'm not good, I'm out. They have, they have made a whole religion on this. And there's many people's lives that have been destroyed by it. Do you not see that our indifference comes from this idea that somehow I've got to work in order to make things better. I've got to make things happen. So you, you maybe came into church this morning and you've got things on your mind that you know like, I have blown it, I have messed things up and I just need to try a little bit harder. And I'm not saying that trying is never a good thing, but I'm saying it starts with this. It starts with the realization that your work isn't going to fix it. Only Jesus' work, the what, from this passage is what is going to fix it. And your heart is revealed in the way that that shows up in your life. Indifference shows up through bad theology. It shows up through inattentiveness to sin. 
Like not, not taking any time. My wife's been reading this book about busyness and hurry and things like that. And it, there's this idea in there of, of like, I'm so busy that I don't have time to stop and contemplate who I am in relation to who God is. You know what happens when you read your Bible? Do you know what happens when you're around other people that are godly? Your life is shown for what it is. It is you, you, it's easy to see, like when, when you compare me with this guy and the way that he's, he's walking with Jesus, when I, when I compare my life with him, I see some realities about my life and maybe he's told me, hey, you're kind of screwed up in this area. When I'm with other believers, when I'm reading the word, when I'm hearing from God, when I'm understanding who he is and I see how holy and righteous and good and just he is, and then I look at my life and I just go, man, something stinks in here. And it's not everybody else, it's me. That's a great place to be. And the reason is, is because you just found out 50 ways that you need the gospel today. You just found out multiple ways that I, the way, when I compare myself to Jesus, when I'm walking with other Jesus followers and I compare myself with other Jesus followers that are striving hard after Jesus, when I see that, like it shows me where I'm wrong and it shows me this. Not that I am released from God, not that God is gonna turn away from me, but that God did something amazing. He sent the Son to be crucified on the cross. Every moment of realization of how I have sinned against God is a moment to re revel in the gospel. Every moment of that. It's an inattentiveness to sin and to shame and to non and unrighteousness, an unwillingness to acknowledge my ongoing need for the Savior, for the Anointed One, for the Sovereign Lord over my life. Is that where you're at? Are you in the midst of indifference because you have been inattentive to where you are because the, the sum total of your Christianity is wrapped up in an hour and a half here at Outward Church? Is that what it is? And lastly, it's just straight up opposition. It's just straight up. I don't want to believe that. There's a pride in there that says no one can do anything for me. I do it for myself. It's just straight up opposition. Last thing here, the who, the what, and the why, the third thing, which is this story about Jesus. And if you're like me, Brandon and I, our, our children's, our, our family ministries director, we're talking this morning just about what we're going to be talking about in our respective places. And Brandon was, we, we were just talking about this idea that like, in the first part of Luke, you really just kind of look at it and you go, you know, this is the, you know, this is the story about Christmas. And this is one of those stories that kind of gets run over by the, you know, the angels and the glory to God in the highest and stuff. And like, oh, and he went to the temple. Cool. All right. Let's move on to the next thing. But this story is really important. As I've said, Luke is trying to tell Theophilus, hey, this is what was said about Jesus. And this last one is Jesus saying something about Jesus. And it's actually really important. And it's the why. It's the why. Verse 49, and he said to them, that's Jesus, said back to his parents who said, why are you treating us like this? He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
Now imagine Mary and Joseph for a second here. These two people had one job, and their one job was this, to make sure that the Savior of the world does not get lost, all right? Like, keep him with you, make sure he stays safe. I don't know if any of you have ever lost a child before uh, in, in a big city. My parents once lost my uh, little brother, Tim, who's also an elder, and he's also much littler. He's shorter than me. Uh, I always have to talk about that, but uh, we lost him in Mexico City, of all places. Like, holy cow, that's freaky, right? It's a few years ago. Wasn't that scary then? But here's Mary and Joseph. They lose Jesus in this giant city. Giant for that day. They lose Jesus, and they're just freaking out, absolutely freaking out. Where is the Savior of the world? The, we just have one kid, one kid. I have four kids. Like, it's amazing I haven't lost one yet. I would have liked to at times, but, uh, but I mean, one kid, they lose him, and then they finally find him. He is in the temple. He's talking to these guys. They're like, this dude knows what he's talking about. He's 12 years old, and they're like, wow, he's going places. It's amazing. That's another hint, like Luke is saying, hey, when he was 12, he was seriously legit when it comes to theology, like he knew his Bible, like he had tons of wisdom and favor from God. It's pretty amazing. But then he tells them something, and he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Why does Jesus say that? Like, I've always read it and been like, that was weird, Jesus. You know, and, you know like the, the dang things that kids say, you know, uh, out of the mouth of babes. Like, they just say weird things like, oh, isn't that cute, Jesus? No, but he's 12. And Luke is trying to tell Theophilus something. He's trying to show him something. What, he's trying to, what is he trying to say to him? What is, what is he trying to communicate to him? Oh, one thing you need to know is this, is that these are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. These are the first words that say, like, these words came out of Jesus' mouth. These are the first recorded words of Jesus. The very first thing that he says. And a lot of times we talk about when Jesus goes into the temple and he opens up Isaiah and he reads from that. We say that's the beginning of his ministry. But really, his ministry is kind of starting when he's 12 years old. And he says something that's really stinking important. And what does he say? Read it again. Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know that I got to be in my dad's house? I got to be in my father's house. You know I had to be there. See, here's the thing. Old Testament idea, meaning ancient idea of who God is, is God as like a founding father. Not necessarily as a dad father, like, hey, dad, how's it going? That, like, but like a founding father. So there's this formality between God. And certainly, there's, it's more than that. The Psalms pour out you know, this love for God and, and, and so forth. But generally speaking, Jewish people did not have this great understanding of God as more than a founding father, but as a personal father. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He's born as a baby. He comes on the scene, and, and then he gets lost that day, and he ends up in the temple, and Luke is trying to tell Theophilus something. He's saying this. This is what Jesus said. This is the first thing that I'm going to record about him. And the thing that I'm going to record about him is that, did you not know that i got to be in my dad's house? 
And why is that important? Because of this. Because it changes everything. It changes everything. Jesus is saying that it is possible to have close and personal relationship with the God of the universe. He himself, Jesus brings us into this. Jesus makes us a part of this. It's not just Jesus who has a relationship with the Father, but Jesus makes the way for us to have deep and abiding relationship with the Father. Look at John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is saying, I'm a child, and I love to be in my Father's house. And Jesus invites us into the house of God. Look at Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as, uh, uh, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's, that word Abba means Daddy. This is the close and personal relationship that Jesus is, is exclaiming, Mom, did you know that I needed to be in my father's house? This is what he's saying. And then it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does that say? What, what does that mean? Jesus just gave us a hint. And the hint is this. Follow the way of my life. Because I have relationship with the sovereign God. And it is in and through me that you get to have that same relationship. You're a son. You're a daughter. You gain an inheritance. You get to have close, personal relationship with this God. Where's our indifference come from? The fact that I know Jesus' name that there's on some level that I've accepted it, but the what, I've, I don't know that I've really dug into that, his work on the cross, and the why, I don't really know what that is. What's the why? It's relationship with the God of the universe. Jesus shows us this. Jesus shows us this through his life. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are here to show us how to have relationship with God as we look at Jesus and we see his life. And when Jesus begins to jump off the page to us, when we read it so much that he begins to, we begin to picture who he is. We begin to follow who he is. We begin to take on his personality traits. Instead of like angrily answering back, we begin to uh, respond with grace and mercy because Jesus has given us mercy. Because God has given us grace and mercy through Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And the question is this. If Jesus needs to be in his father's house, how much more do we? Now, before you get off track here, we're not talking about being in the church building, just so you know. Back then, that's where God was. God was in the temple kind of a deal, and that's where they went to be with God. Today, being in father's, the father's house is in relationship with God. Yes, it's a part of being with a body of people and connecting with them and stuff, but it's not just about being in a building. If Jesus needs to be in his father's house, 
How much more do we? And I have, I have an idea, and that is that there's many of us who are not in the house, but we're on the fence. You can see the house, but we're not in the house. We're on the fence. We're not in the house. We're on the fence. And why is that? Because the what has never become real to you and me. What do you think about when you see Jesus on the cross? How do you respond to that? Has the sword pierced your soul? How how does the sword pierce your soul? The sword pierces your soul when you see that he was pierced because of your transgressions, because of your sin, because of my sin. He went to the cross for everything that I have done, am doing, and am going to do that is against him. He went and did that. Has a sword pierced your soul? One way to find out is to ask yourself, am I living in relationship with this God? Am I in the house or am I on the fence? And if you're on the fence, then I would say this, the sword has never pierced your soul in the way that it must. Now, how? How do you do that? You can't. There's no amount of work that you can do. You can't, you can't make it happen in your life because it happens by the power of the Spirit. Did you see Simeon? He has the Spirit of God in him. He's led by the Spirit, and he goes to the temple that day. It is a God-ordained connection. Simeon with Jesus. God sets that up. This is what God can do in your life. This is what God does, is that God can bring about a relationship with, with himself between you and him, in a way that you could never achieve. And he does it by the power of his spirit. And so what you must do, what you must do, is that you must acknowledge him as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. You must see him on the cross and see when he went to that cross for you, he paid the penalty for your sin. And we do this on a regular basis as my Savior, as my Christ, as my Lord, as those things. When I see him and I see who he is on a regular basis and what he's done for me, in spite of the fact that I yelled at my wife this morning, in spite of the fact that I sinned in this way and that I've been wrong in so many different ways, when I see it over and over again, but yet he died for me and he died for me and he died for me and he didn't, didn't do it over and over again. He did it once and he paid for that and he paid for that and he paid for that. And then as a result, I'm in the house. I'm not on the fence. So are you indifferent today? 2020 is a good time to see some things become different. Jesus can make it happen in your life. Pray to him and ask him to make that change. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you and we praise you for what you are able to do in our lives through no effort of our own. Lord, I'm, I'm concerned and I'm worried that there's many of us that have been indifferent here 
Lord, we go through periods of, of time where we're indifferent. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would awaken this church, this group of people, or these sheep that you, that you are the chief shepherd over. And, God, I'm praying for them individually as they start their year. That, Lord, that you would do something amazing in each and every one of their lives. Lord, we're not talking about health, wealth, prosperity. God, we are talking about even suffering that may be difficult in the short term, but, Lord, in the long term, they see you working in and through this. Lord, would you do that in our lives? Lord, it's so hard to, to pray like that because it's, it's being open to pain. But God, you, you endured pain. You endured the sword for us. So Lord, would you bring us closer to you? Would we not be indifferent towards your cross? Lord, may we, may we reside with you in the house and not on the fence. By your power, it's in your name we pray, amen.